Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today my guest is Shwetang Verma. Shwetang is a co-founder and managing partner at Leo Capital, an early stage VC firm based in Singapore, investing in technology-centric opportunities in India and Southeast Asia. Prior to his role at Leo Capital, Shwetang was a head of open innovation at MetLife Asia, and he also served as an advisor on open innovation to several Fortune 500 companies. Now let's talk to him. Hi Shwetang, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey Rahul, great to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I would like to know where did you grow up? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I sort of grew up between different places. So I did my large part of my primary schooling in uh, in the UK in a town called Reading, which is a small town near London. Yeah, and then I did my secondary uh, my you know high schooling in in Lucknow, which is a small town in North India. and then i went to university in the uk so i grew up in between these two cultures india and the uk more in india but you know very key years in the uk so a bit of both yeah uh, how how come uh, so your parents were uh, working in the uk and then they decided to come back to india or my parents were in the indian government so they had you know they had some uh, sort of posting in the uk for a bit then they came back to india how different was it like growing up between uk and india oh was it difficult was for you to adjust <laughs> yes i i always say that you know one of the toughest things was moving back as a 12 year old uh, so that set me up for life moving from you know london to lucknow at 12 uh, pretty pretty life changing experience so i i you know i moved i'm dating myself here moved in the early 90s where in lucknow at the time you didn't even get a can of coke so and you didn't have the cartoon shows nothing so it was a massive change for me but uh, i i enjoyed it you know after the initial shock it was great to be back home and uh, you know i i enjoyed my 6 7 years in lucknow before moving back to the uk at the age of 18 yeah and uh, what were your interests uh, growing up Yeah, you know, I I always enjoyed sports quite a bit. So I used to play cricket and tennis uh, regularly. I think that was the majority of my interest uh, to the to the you know concern of my parents who were always asking me to study more. Uh but I I enjoyed uh, sports yeah. and I enjoyed entrepreneurship. So always, you know, early on as a 16 year old, I I was one of the first to have a CD burner in 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 Lucknow and we were running a small CD burning business. So Uh, I enjoyed the process of <laughs> creating something even as basic as CD burning but you know trying to create some ca- some some cash some capital so I enjoyed entrepreneurship from an early age so that was an early interest uh, sports was another interest and then reading was the third and final interest reading non fiction not not my not my studies unfortunately Yeah, I, I used to do the same thing you know I used to make copies of games and then sell it to friends uh, to make money <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the, the thing is that I did not have a CD burner. I used to go to a shop to get it done, and then it was like an arbitrage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's even that's the even harder path. <laughs> yeah. In the end, how did you end up in venture? So I think it was a natural progression for me, Rahul. I built and sold a couple of companies. I worked as a investor at a large family office. I, you know, worked as a innovation person in a large Fortune 50 company. 
And I think, you know, bringing all these experiences together, Venture was the most natural home for me. Uh, I didn't have the desire to do another startup. It requires far too much effort. You know, it requires a lot of effort, a lot of energy. And I've done that a yeah. couple of times. So I knew what I was lacking there. And, you know, the opportunity was really, is really now in India and Southeast Asia. The, the next 10 years, I think are going to be fantastic for startup, even given the macro conditions and all the toughness that's going on. There's so much opportunity on the ground. So it felt like a great time yeah. to start a venture firm. And uh, that's how I ended up in venture. We started five years ago, so, you know, it's been five years. Yeah. Yeah, so in your opinion, right, what startup advice seems obviously right? It's relatively easy to follow, but usually I don't. <laughs> Great question. You know, I, I was just with my doctor today and he told me, you need to eat less and lose some weight, right? Classic, easy advice to yeah. give, relatively straight. Well, yeah. not that easy to follow, I guess, but not that hard either. I think in startups, at least yeah. what I tell my portfolio companies is don't treat fundraising as a competition. It's not about how much money you've raised. It's about, you know, what products you've shipped, what problems you've solved, what market traction you've achieved. Uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially compare their raises with companies in the same space. And they're like, if they've raised 15 million, why have you only raised five? Or if they've raised five, why have you only raised one? Uh, and I think that that's the easiest thing to get out of your head as an entrepreneur. There is no reason to think that the volume of dollars raised is determinative to your outcome, at least at the early stage. You know, between yeah. 5 and 15, yeah. you can still win in a, in a market if you've got a better approach to the problem and a better product. If your competitors have raised hundreds of millions, yes, you might be a little late to the market. But I at, this, at the early stage, I wouldn't compare that they've already got to their series A, I am still at you know, seed or something like that. So I think that's the easiest advice. There's a lot of advice around this out there. But for whatever reason, a lot of entrepreneurs treat fundraising as a competition. And whenever you know, somebody else gets funded, it becomes, oh my God, I need to raise my next round. Yeah. Yeah, the real competition should be really about building something that, you know, people, somebody want with the least amount of money and least amount of time. You know, even I fail to uh, do so sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to do to, to yeah, really do that consistently. So I think going back to your question, right? is there any advice that's easy to follow? I don't know. But this is one of the relatively easy advices to follow. And also, could you share with me, so so you have a number of uh, portfolio startups already, and could you share with me like an example of a scenario where you've helped a startup uh, navigate a very difficult situation uh, or make a difficult decision? And <laughs> there are a lot of those scenarios going around, especially at this point of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the things as a VC is that your ability to really do a lot is quite limited. I think the bigger role here is just counsel, you know, support, counseling, be open, listening, try not to judge. But you do, you know, occasionally you can help um, in ways. I think this current SVB disaster, of course, is a is a tangible example, right? Where we see one of the yeah. key things we sell is our roller decks, right? Our network. So I think over here, we were able yeah. to do some interesting things around, uh, you know, creating, for instance, uh, you know, we're, we're working with with a insurer to create an insurance product which actually increases our startups insured deposits way above FIDIC levels, right? So that's something it's, it won't help immediately, but it's an interesting interesting sort of thing that 
we are going to offer our, all our portfolio companies. In the immediate aftermath of SVB, sort of helping founders open new bank accounts, get introductions, and you know move money around and all of that. But these are more tactical things. I don't think they're that transformative. I think the one the thing that we really help founders in, or or, or, or what's the really tricky situation is when you're having founder conflict. And I think they're helping founders decide how to move forward because two founders or three founders fighting with each other can never build a you know, generational company or a lasting company. And I think they're you know, helping founders. I don't want to name the companies, but quite a few times we've helped founders dis- disentangle that situation, right? By either buying secondary shares from a founder, helping create the right exit paths for some, at least one of the founders so that everybody else can work in harmony and grow the business together. I think that's been, uh, that's been the thing that I find the most challenging to work on, but also the most satisfying once it's resolved and the companies start to grow dramatically. Yeah. So what would be an example of this? Yeah, I mean, the example of this would be, you know, let's say they're two co-founders and, they, and they're sort of really not getting along, right? They, they, they need to they need yeah. to sort of sep- go separate ways. So the exa- the, over here, it would be actually spending time with each of them individually, figuring out who is actually more committed to the uh, to the f- you know future and and the vision of the company, and then helping the other one accept that he ne- he or she needs to move on and finding the right exit path for them. That's what this this kind of you know helping the founders amicably as possible as much as possible amicably amicably go their separate ways uh, so that the company and the original vision or you know whatever the pivoted vision is can grow that that is i think a, an area where especially a lot of early stage startups require support sometimes uh, and it's you know something that if it, if you get it right can really transform the trajectory of a company yeah uh, has there been a uh, scenario in your experience where you had to completely replace the founding team so I think that, you know, we are real seed stage investors, Rahul. So I think if you are ending up with a complete replacement of the founding team, it's a de- it's 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 over. Uh, the companies are too small for yeah. founding team replacements. So we haven't done that. Touch wood, we never had to do that. And I think only a couple of companies where we've had to deal with founder conflict also. Touch, you know, we've we spent a lot of time actually before an investment to make sure there is no founder conflict or, or there is, you know, there yeah. are pathways that are established in a founder's agreement, et cetera, to, to resolve founder conflict. Uh, but it, it's an inevitable part of life. So it happens. And I think being on top of it and solving it as quickly as you can changes outcomes for the company. Yeah. But we never replaced a founding team. We have no desire to replace a founding team. And my belief is that if you are thinking about re- replacing a founding team at seed or series A, it's better to shut the company, return whatever cash there is and try again. Yeah. And you spoke about uh, spending a lot of time with startups uh, before you invest. So what do you think startups can do to do their due diligence on VCs very smartly? What should be a startup's approach? be? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think there is a lot you can do as a startup. So I think simple, of course, read the website. Uh, I can't tell you how many D2C startups still pitch to us. Uh, when there's on our website, it's clearly written, we don't invest in D2C. Uh, we don't do brands. We only invest in technology startups. So start with a very simple uh, that, uh, you know, this is, it's like a job application. You can think of it like a job application. You can think of it like any any place where you're trying to put your best foot forward. So you should read the website. I think it's a very simple, uh, you know, not that time-consuming task to do. You should 
to the extent possible read or follow on the you know a lot of lot of vcs put a lot of stuff out on twitter on linkedin so just follow read that i think it was some of the most effective cold pitches are when you read something that the vc has written and you reference it in your pitch and say hey you talked about this problem we are solving it here 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 at least for us i think a couple of companies have converted because they use that cold approach to to reach out to rajul or myself on on something that we written in twitter or 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 linkedin uh, the third you know once you get so that i think that's the easy thing about you know how to think about vc as you are approaching them for investment let's see you've had a conversation it's looking good and the vc is giving you a term sheet at that point you really need to diligence the vc and i think very few startups do this and it's important to do because you are signing up for a long time with this person with this firm and you want yeah. to know how they are in adversity uh, because a, there is a lot of behavior which can be really destructive in adversity uh, and uh, you know as a founder i dealt with it as a vc i want to make sure i never i never be that kind of person but Uh, you know every founder should sort of do their diligence and the way to diligence we see this to talk to their to their portfolio companies you can ask the vc for references to founders you can reach out directly most founders are fairly open to uh, you know responding to people if you send them a message saying hey we've got a term sheet from leo capital we just want to talk to you about your experience i think most founders will respond and if the founders don't respond that itself is a red flag right you should read something into that as to why founders are not responding to do a request for ref check so before signing you know final docs yeah. etc you certainly do ref check with the portfolio companies to the extent you can and be comfortable with the, both the firm and the partner who is joining your your company potentially your board and and understand that it's a two way process you know i think a lot of founders uh, because there's still a scarcity of capital in our ecosystems uh, you know if you're giving a term sheet most founders say okay let's take it but you shouldn't do that you should you should certainly do some more diligence you should make sure you are truly happy to be working with this person for the next 5 to 8 years before you before you sort of accept the you know the investment yeah a couple of things you know i'm really happy that you said that you know people should read what the vcs write on linkedin or other places uh, that's the fundamental reason i do the podcast because i expect founders to listen to this podcast once it comes out uh, just to get an understanding of who you are and uh, what you look for <laughs> that's the need that i am fulfilling here and the second thing also you mentioned about uh, if a founder don't respond to you that's already like a bad sign so can i ask like is founders really incentivized to share his or her details like all experiences of a vc uh, very openly because this is a very very a small ecosystem where everybody knows each other right so do you think you can really get the truth of uh, what a vc is like uh, from the founders i think you can in a one on one phone call or a one on one meeting i certainly think you can uh, i don't think you're going to get it on twitter uh, you know i don't think founders are going to especially negative stories i don't think you're going to get on a public forum so yes yeah. uh, i wouldn't like i wouldn't ask the you shouldn't do a diligence call on a recorded call or a podcast or something like that but i think if you ask honestly my sense is at least as a founder when i was a founder i was very honest about it in one to one conversation so uh, i think most founders especially if there's a negative experience most founders want to make sure they don't perpetuate that so you should get you should be able to get you know real answers from founders uh, in a in, you know in a non public one to one phone or ideally face to face setting yeah 
and what do you think are some of the most effective ways to or the right approach to uh, to reach out to vcs is is it still through warm introductions or right so it depends on the vc i guess like we are we answer every cold email that we get 100% of cold emails are answered reviewed and answered so for us the simplest way to reach out to us is right to pitch dot pitch at leo dot capital it will be read by a partner and a partner will review and respond so there is no uh, there is no need for a warm intro there is no reason for a, you know anything special to do uh, to 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 do to get to get in front of us yes it's great if you've read our website and you know what we invest in so you're able to sort of grab our attention quickly and you don't send us things that are completely out of our wheelhouse but even if you send us a d2c we'll send you a one liner back saying hey this is outside our scope of investments we don't invest yeah. you know in this place uh, so that's that's for us but uh, you know more broadly of course we are all humans so warm intro always helps i think what a warm intro does is gets you to that first call level so it i don't think it helps yeah. more than that so you know you still need to have a very solid business you still need to have a very solid uh, you know uh, approach to a problem that you're solving and the problem itself needs to be meaningful but a warm intro will probably get you a call and you know at uh, uh, conversation at least that conversation which you know uh, you may not get if it's completely cold but if the company is not investable you you'll still get a no after that you know call so the warm intro doesn't change your i don't think it changes the odds of an investment it just changes the odds of the first call yeah yeah the idea is the goal is to get the first call right so uh, so some of what are some of the best practices uh, in terms of like the email that you write and also the way you design or prepare the pitch deck uh, to get to that first call at least <laughs> there's a lot of stuff out there i guess on this um, but for us it's i think yeah. simple you know the best cold emails are this is the problem i'm solving this is why it's a large problem and this is this is sort of the high level approach we have if you can write that in three paras in the cold email that will make sure we open your deck which should have some more details about the team and then you know we'll get the first call i think the simplest thing that founders can do to improve their pitches yeah. is improve the team slide the team slide in god knows how many pitches is photo yeah linkedin and some logos it tells me nothing right yeah you went to harvard fantastic yeah. like why should i yeah. care so you know i think that's yeah. and this is an epidemic every slide is like this so make that small change there just you know if there's a logo talk about why that logo relates to the problem at hand or why why your team slide is a chance to get your founder market fit across right so make it to do that and adding linkedin buttons does not do that so yes you can have it if you really want it but ask yourself the question is my team slide conveying founder market fit and if it is not redo it and i show you mug shots with linkedin buttons it does not convey founder market fit and i think one more thing that a lot of teams do is add a add a lot of advisors and lot of sort of part time people and all of that again that is not helpful at the seed stage so you know if somebody's not full time or if you know unless there's an absolutely world class advisor ignore the advisor slide don't add it focus on your problem focus on your solution and really tell me why you are the right team to be building the solution yeah <laughs> that's that's wrong in a, in the sense like you're just telling that you know i need to show the names of so many other people it is not <laughs> 
like really selling yourself exactly exactly and you know it it's startups are built on the core founding team uh, advisors and all of that are, have limited sort of value to be added at this stage of the company they come slightly more handy once you get to series b onwards right they can open more doors etc so that's my belief at least focus yeah. more on the team slide you can really stand out if you move your team slide into a more interesting document than what most startups do at the moment yeah yeah and and, and i know that insurtech is a is a area of interest uh, for you <laughs> so I, i don't know much about insurtech so where is the real value add uh, for insurtech for example i can clearly see uh, what has happened with the payments uh, or the india stack especially in the india how it has made everything very inclusive and cheaper uh, for just about anybody and more convenient and similar things are happening with credit with the account aggregator and stuff so where is the real value uh, for insurtech yeah it's you know it's a good question so uh, you know basically if you think about it you know the overall financial services right uh, basically allow you to earn save and protect right so so you know payments etc payments lending as well as on the earn side and typically most people need to earn before they need to save before they can save then they need to save before they can protect so that's why you've seen that the initial wave of investments etc were all on things that are lower down that stack right the so so everything is been in in lending in payments uh, you're seeing now more and more in wealth management as more people get enough to save and finally insurance is coming to you know finally protect what you have and and give you a a safety net so that's the sort of way to think about why insurance has been a bit behind say payments credit etc what it can do is really similar to what it you know what tech has done in 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 payments in in credit and all of that uh, rahul so the core is it i think the core is it it reduces costs and increases convenience that's true for digitalization across all sectors it holds true for insurance as well insurance specifically is a data driven product so the more data i have about you the more i can understand the risk that i am underwriting and how to price it more effectively so much like thin file people are being underwritten on mobile phone data and credit you're able to create insurance products based on this data and and that is what insurtech is about so insurtech is about using the using data and using you know mobile to basically create an offer and create access to products that you know were very hard to otherwise uh, distribute to to the masses So the way to think about it is that typically an insurance product needed a significant sort of size a premium size before it became viable for feet on the ground distributors. So you couldn't have micro insurance or cheap products because it was just they were just not economically viable if you had to pay 50 60% to a distributor. But with 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 the mobile with insurtech solutions you can go direct or you can go through embedded solutions right embedded insurance is the big big thing these days where because of the yeah. volume and because of you know easy to sort of or default attach and all of these things you can bring a lot more volume reduce the commission per policy but still it becomes meaningful enough because the volume is higher so it makes uh, makes sense for everyone so that's why i think that's that's sort of the exciting thing about insurtech at the moment uh, allowing a lot of indian southeast asia is still new to insurance it's like 10 years ago most were new to new to credit now most are new to insurance so i think the uptake you saw in credit you'll see a similar uptake in insurance just it won't be as big because everybody wants a loan but not everybody wants in, wants insurance yeah i think uh, and also there are a lot of similarities between 
this embedded finance and like you're saying embedded insurance right the approach is kind of similar and also similar to fintech getting a license for insurance or a banking license it's it's still similar challenges right from a regulatory perspective yeah you know i mean so regulatory perspectives typically there are different regulators for the banks and insurers in all countries but it's the same same challenge to get license so regulation is interesting right it's a double edged sword if you get the license it is a moat it does help you you know it helps you do things that you can't do otherwise without a license and Uh, in in these markets in india and southeast asia it's still helpful to be able to be like have that license to say like a bank right if you have a license you can take deposits your cost f- funding goes down and that is a competitive advantage to a fintech which cannot take licenses if you're both tech first right so there's a lot of lot like in india a lot of small finance banks which are more tech enabled than the legacy banks and and are i think interesting interesting opportunities as to how fintech and and traditional finance intersect similarly i think digital first insurers like aco and and digit are showing great progress because they are you know they have full licenses and they can take the underwriting profit whenever they make it on on their own on their own account uh, you know compared to compared to those without the license so yeah i think it's tough to get regulation it's, yeah. it's it requires a lot of capital but if you can get it if you're on the other side then it can be a it can be a great moat for uh, for growing tech companies yeah but but what about the problem of trust so i kind of feel that for a lot of uh, neo banks uh, establishing trust is a challenge uh, so is there similar issues or like what are some of the challenges that the startups and insure insure tech generally face yeah i mean i think Neither the challenges are regulation very... of course Yeah, challenges are very similar to the fintech space, Rahul. So distribution, trust, adoption, sales, all of the you know the the, the same sta- sort of challenges. So the you know the easiest is to sell a loan, right? Because you're giving money. So people are obviously there's no yeah. trust required to take it if you're giving me money, and that's that's the easiest. And it goes higher from there, right? A bank, it's harder because you have to trust them uh, to keep your money safe, give it back. now there is ins- government insures certain part of your deposit and all of that but still you have to work on on making trust insurance is the hardest because there's just a promise right i take your premium today and i promise that i will pay you claim when you when you need it and there's a lot of uh, there's a history of claims being denied so a lot of lack of trust in insurance in any case so there is no easy answer to that building trust takes time building trust is a function of proving that you make good on your promises and that's why claims are the most important part of a new insurer or a, you know uh, for a new bank it's slightly easier because a new bank can you know give you a loan and start that relationship and and it's slightly easier than than an insurer but for an insurer it's important to pay out at least the claims that they get initially and make a big splash about it right show let everyone know that you're paying these claims you have a high claim payout ratio etc pay claims at the edge right so those like the maybe a traditional insurer may refuse that claim because it's you know 95% it's there but 5% is missing but pay it out as a new new insurer it costs a little bit but it helps you build that trust where over time then you can become more you know more uh, more rigorous in your claim payouts but getting that right initially is is key to building trust yeah and also can i ask specifically regarding health insurance right So let's say something like India, a health stack comes up, 
where you know even insurance companies have access to your entire uh, medical history that would be a net positive right i mean i've seen uh, you know i remember people telling you know this would increase my premium and uh, this would be like a disaster and things like that but i i feel that you know uh, there's no point in hiding right you know but when it comes to claim they're going to do a forensic audit <laughs> on everything that has happened and then you're not going to get the claim anyway so uh, this is going to be a net positive right yeah at a societal level it's going to be net positive right so if i take everyone it's going to be net positive but for individuals it could it may not be if you have terrible health and you know you were doing some you know you managed to obfuscate your data or something and you got coverage it happens it can be done but yes at a societal level it certainly it is it's a net positive and i think it needs to be coupled with ways for making insurance affordable for those who have a lot of you know existing conditions and things like that so how do you manage that that's that's a trickier one to answer because you know if it's left to purely market forces potentially the the premiums will become unaffordable for people with you know multiple uh, multiple diseases or pre-existing conditions so there needs to be like a taxpayer funded safety net as well to truly manage this but that can come later i think uh, rolling out health stack allowing the different insurers access to the data so that you can truly differentiate on underwriting see it's you know the the way you use the data is actually the core differentiator of uh, uh, in this in this kind of model so i think it's great to be make, make the same data available to everyone so that those with better insights better ability to use the data are able to actually create the best products so i think the health stack you know as it scales up is going to be a great uh, well for want of a better word great experiment into how has to how insurance companies yeah. deal with standardized data and standardized you know raw materials from which they have to extract value and change you know create outcomes and i think also the health stack creates a lot of incentives for insurers to create value added programs right so once you know all my history you can predict a little bit more yeah. okay i'm at higher risk of say heart disease 5 years down the line so how do you nudge me and and you know make it easier for me to have better behavior today so that my heart risk you know goes further 10 years out 15 years out rather than 5 years out yeah i read an article that you've written i mean a post a linkedin post that you've written on a similar topic on health where yeah behavioral change is the only way <laughs> so a lot of the costs on health insurance these days are from metabolic diseases like diabetes and there is no yeah. at least for now there is no solution you know tomorrow we come up with a solution we we do gene editing or something then all of this changes but uh, today if you're diabetic it gives you way higher chance of kidney disease way higher chance of heart disease and india is the diabetes capital of the world right so for now the only real path is behavior change and systematic behavior change to to reduce your long term risk otherwise we'll end up with a situation where it's just becomes more and more expensive to insure and insurance if you see in health insurance has been inflation in health insurance has been galloping because uh, people's chronic diseases are just not under control yeah what about the state of venture in india in 2023 so Uh, it's been like two decades close to two decades since venture really started as an industry where are we and what are the positive changes that you would like to see in the indian eco- uh, ecosystem yeah we see ecosystem yeah great question so i think we are in our teenage years now so we passed the the early childhood and you know it's time to uh, 
time to get serious right so i still think it's uh, you know the potential is ahead like any teenager the the future is ahead of you right so the peak potential is still uh, still coming say say 10 years down the line over the next 10 years you're going to be the peak performance uh, personally you know the what we are seeing is phenomenal teams so this is a great time to be building in india so i think a lot of people have seen the first generation of hyperscalers so we're seeing a lot of teams come out of say flipkart paytm misho they've all seen what scale looks like they've all seen what good looks like and that is a huge step up from the founders who were building paytm misho flipkart who didn't have any of these playbooks they hadn't seen right nobody had built it scaled up technology company other than sort of say infosys or tata yeah. consultancy services they hadn't built product companies so that's one big change so fantastic set of entrepreneurs who've seen a lot of scale and a lot of good things building companies so that's one good thing the public infrastructure is improved by leaps and bounds so upi health stack jam allows you yeah. to really both create both digital and physical both digital and physical more digital physical i think still needs a bit of improvement but it's getting there but the digital infrastructure to build on is fantastic right so that allows you to scale more fast uh, scale more rapidly and uh, you know hit the milestones that are needed faster as an ecosystem otherwise we as vcs we need to create more exit opportunities and again you know it is good to see companies like Zomato, Nike, etc. List. I think we need to see many more of those kind of companies list and maintain their stock prices, and of course grow, etc. In um, in in the Indian stock exchange. Uh, one challenge now is that with the cost of money going up, everybody needs to think about profitability a lot harder. So there was a question, you know, what's your path to profitability? These three words: path to profitability. I used to hear them a lot when I was doing investing in 2010, 2011. Then they disappeared. Nobody used to ask that question for last three, four years. that yeah. question has come back and it's important to the founders to think more closely about that growth for growth's sake does not work anymore you need to make sure your unit economics work etc i think those are the things so it's a very positive great talent great opportunity it's the largest sort of growth market that there is in the world now uh, you know us and china ex- outside of the us and china uh, so i think a lot of generational companies will be created over the next 10 years we are very excited to be backing all these founders who are coming out you know who are sort of building for tomorrow's india and i think you know the government has been vastly supportive it's all good there are a few things here and there like the angel tax etc which i'm sure will be cleared up and can be made slightly more friendly to startups but on the on the whole you know there's a lot i think the positive side of the ledger is a lot larger than the the cons at the moment okay yeah in in terms of the things like angel tax do you think that would be fixed soon from a regulatory perspective i mean i don't have any insight on whether it will be fixed soon i really hope it will be fixed soon <laughs> i think it's not it's not conducive for startup investing specifically you know bringing money in from outside but let's see uh, you know how it goes but i hope it's fixed soon yeah this is i mean this uh, doing that in the us was exactly the reason why the venture ecosystem like really took off right you know uh, th- there was a lobby who kind of managed to get a lot of tax break tax breaks for venture investments yeah for venture investments for vcs uh, for entrepreneurs uh, the roth ira there's a lot of things that happened in the us uh, which uh, i think some of them that can, if you could implement in in india would be great but you know we'll we'll see what happens here yeah and you know one last question we before we end this why the name leo capital 
<laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great question, Rahul. So uh, so Rajul and I started Leo, and we locked ourselves in a room trying to come up with a name that uh, that we really liked. And I think we went through like about I'd say hundreds of names that whatever reason we didn't like one thing or the other. And ultimately, it came down to our we sort of try we're trying different inspirations, right? So we came down to to our sun signs to you know, and I'm I'm can I'm a Cancer. He's a he's a Leo. Uh, so cancer capital just didn't work, right? I, I mean, I loved it. I said it's you know growth even if it kills you, but, uh, <laughs> that uh, for right reasons was ruled out. And Leo has the right sort of you know you're the king of the jungle, you're aggressive but not not crazy. So the lion I think appeals, and we were also based in Singapore, so it all added up together. So, so Leo Capital was born. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. No, thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I, I, you know, best of luck with uh, with the podcasts.